0: Father, everything about you is forever and everything about us isn't apart from the life that you give. Our lives are cut short by death. Our justice is cut short by our own sin. We think of a former president of this world's most powerful nation, the most powerful nation the world has ever seen who passed this last week, a former president but you will never pass on the power of men and the reach of kingdoms is limited by time and space, but you are limited by neither time nor space for you are the maker of all things and you make a new creation. And our problem as humans, the problem of sin, alienation from you is one that is solved by your initiative, by your great plan and by your great provision in the son, and a king who comes to ransom his people. And here we gather in his name to sing and now to hear his word and to put ourselves under his rule. In his name we pray, amen. Please be seated and open with me in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah chapter 13 is where we'll be this morning. Book of Isaiah chapter 13. Well, Christmas is here and with it, the sounds of Christmas. Uh, certainly Christmas songs on a, a Sunday morning like this, which are but songs of one glorious gospel doctrine, the incarnation, the coming of the Son of God. But in our department stores, we'll hear Santa baby. You'll hear the sound of, of bells at this time of year, the sound of wrapping paper, maybe in your, in your home, the sound of Christmas music. If you decide to play it, you may have already been playing it, that's too long. Maybe the sound of voices and friends and family at Christmas parties, I hope, I hope some of that at least. Well, the book of Isaiah is full of sounds of Christmas, and we heard some of them last week in our first sermon in this series through Isaiah, a short five-part series. We heard that the Lord will give a sign, the virgin will conceive, and a son will come, a people who walked in darkness have seen a great light unto us. A child is born. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, and he has other names. And from a stump, a shoot will come and bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Those are the best sounds of Christmas. But there are some other sounds that we hear in this book, too, and they aren't the normal holiday sounds. They're, they're horrifying sounds. So let's listen to the first eight verses of chapter 13, a kind of a a sample playlist from what we'll get in all of 13 through 27 were we to read the whole section. Isaiah 13. An oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw. On a bare hill, raise a signal. Cry aloud to them. Wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. I myself have commanded my consecrated ones and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exalting ones. The sound of a tumult is on the mountains as, a, as of a great multitude, the sound of an uproar of kingdoms of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land, from the end of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Ever get into your car to be met with the surprise of uh, the radio on Full blast. Maybe it depends on who you're married to, or how old your kids are. Now, I now imagine that you can't turn it off or down, and you can't get out of the car. And that's a little of something of what these fifteen chapters are like. They're almost all loud, pegging to the right on the volume knob, unbearishably unbearably harsh. Kingdoms roaring and people wailing and God's judgment falling and here he announces his judgment on Babylon and it goes on for another chapter or so if we were to keep reading it goes on to Philistia and then to Moab and then to Damascus and then to and then to Egypt that's five judgments on five nations and then he'll go on for about another round of five and this time the targets are cryptic and if you're reading through Isaiah you're starting to wonder if you should keep reading through Isaiah the wilderness of the sea. What is that? Duma and Arabia, the valley of vision gets a judgment, and, and Tyre gets a judgment. Folks, I was so excited to preach Isaiah until I got to chapter 13 and kept reading and kept reading. It cannot be preached. Honestly, it reminds me of Fangorn's forest in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. It's shadowy. It's, it's disorienting. It's It's intimidating, especially if you have to get up and preach it and talk about it and make sense of it and bring it home. You don't want to do wrong by the word. That's the hard work of reading the Bible well and speaking it to one another and of preaching it. You want to do right, but you have to understand it and perceive, and we need God's help for that. That's why we pray. That's why I pray. Please pray for me. Maybe you felt the same way as you're reading through it. Fangorn's Forest. Well, that's okay. You're not biblically illiterate. You might be biblically illiterate, but this is not the test case for whether or not you're biblically illiterate. If you know your Bibles really well, you read this and thought, oh, I'm glad we're going through it on Sunday, and you began to pray for me. Well, here's what one commentator said. At first sight, this stretch of Isaiah's prophecy can appear to be quite uninviting for the contemporary preacher. The issues seem to belong to history long past. Some of the meanings are opaque, if not obscure. And much of the material can appear to be, and I love this, unremittingly doom-laden. Unremittingly doom-laden. It's hardly surprising that the most contemporary Christians will never have heard a sermon from this part of Isaiah's book. And you can count yourself out if you can make it through the end. Well, that's true, at least for me. While the first 12 chapters were loaded with familiar and happy lines, many of them from our Christmas songs and sermons, this section is a wilderness. Well, what are we to do when we come to a confusing part of the Bible such as this? It's a good reminder that this is why God has given teachers to the church. There are parts of Scripture that require long exposure and synthesis and dot connecting and time. And so part of our partnership in the gospel is to set some apart for long exposure on passages like this. But one of the reasons He gives teachers to the church is not just to teach you what it means and how it comes to bear on your life, but to teach you how to read the Bible so that you can read it on your own, so you can hear what it says on your own. Will you ever have been lost in a forest knowing that there must be a path somewhere, but having no idea where it is? You, maybe you're not a path, and then you're off the path, and you don't know where the path is, and every direction you walk, you wonder if you're getting farther away or closer. You might even be 15 feet away from the path and staring right at it, but if you're staring at it from the wrong angle, you can't see it. All the trees line up like this and you can't see the path through the forest and you continue to look. But once you set foot on the path and turn your head, it's as clear as day. Well, that's what we have to do in this section of scripture. We need to find the path and then we'll know where we are and where we're going. And most importantly, we'll be able to take in the forest for all of its power and for all of its beauty And get our mind off of ourselves and how we don't know where we are. So we're looking for the path. What's the pathway through the forest? And not just out, but through it to Christ and to us. So we may not feel lost. We're not going to call on a helicopter to get us out of the forest this morning. God put the forest of these manifold judgments... For some cryptic places in here. So let's look for the path through the passage. If we can find it, then we can, then we can find ourselves. So we can find the Lord. Here's the crucial pathfinding path word for this morning. It's why. It's why. Why is the passage here? No question I have found cracks a passage open like the, path, like the question why. You've got to ask the question who, who's writing, who's reading, who's speaking, who are the characters, that kind of thing. You've got to ask when, when was it written, where are we at in the Bible's story? How is it being said? What's its genre? But once all that's done, the question of why is it here, why is it here, opens the path to the passage. It's the breakthrough question. It's my favorite. Remember the shape of the whole book. Isaiah starts with a vision of a city in ruins, a faithful city called Jerusalem, a stand-in for humanity. God's humanity restoration project. He's giving them all the support, all of his wonders and all of his word. A city in faithlessness and ruins, and he ends with a vision of a new city, a new Jerusalem in righteousness, brilliant, shining, radiant glory. Heaven, if you want to call it that. The new creation. It's a conversion story, the book of Isaiah is. The whole Bible is for humanity, and it, it can be yours. I pray it is. The question of the book of Isaiah is how the city at the beginning becomes the city at the end of the book and how we can be found in the happy one, in the singing one, given God's great holiness and given our great sin. And every part of the Bible is revealing some of the answer, and Isaiah gives so much away. So why is this section here? That's our question. Well, consider that the section is not addressed to the nations about which it speaks. It's not addressed to the nations with a word of judgment on them. It's addressed to God's people, to Israel, with a word of judgment concerning the nations. Well, that's interesting. So judgment on Babylon is not written here for Babylon. It's written for Israel to listen in on and hear a word of judgment for Babylon in each of the subsequent judgments. Why might that matter for them? Well, maybe because they're surrounded by huge, intimidated, light, intimidating, life-threatening nations. In here, it's good to remember that most people haven't lived in the United States of America, flanked by great oceans, with the hat called Canada. No offense to Canadians. But, um, you know, we don't scare each other. Uh, and even Mexico to the south. We, we, we're not, uh, we, you know, nations give each other trouble. But we're in a pretty, we're in a pretty good place as nations and people have gone Why is this section here? Here's why it's here. It's here to answer the hugely important question for us. Where is security found? Where is security found? That's the question we've been asking since we left the Garden of Eden. And there's only two answers. There's security and humanity and a whole variety or species of answers to our security and safety and trust in humanity. Human answers to the human problem of death. And then there's, if you will, security found in heaven, in the God of heaven. Israel and her king have failed to trust God. God promised Assyria couldn't touch them, you'll remember from last week. But Ahaz said, said, I'm not so sure. I'm going to align myself with Syria. Sure as God promised, Assyria comes in and there's decimation. And they need hope, those that are left. God promised the decimation would not be total. There would be survivors She would be cut down to a stump, but there would be life from that stump. A child would be born who would sit on David's throne and their city would become a renewed creation, that future city we mentioned. That kind of promise sure sounds great, doesn't it? But could they believe it? Could they afford to believe it? Can you and I afford to bank all of our hope, all of our eternity, 100% of our trust, on promises from an ancient book and a word about a resurrected man and an empty tomb? It's the same question. The city of the world laughs at the thought, and we come out of the womb laughing at the thought. The city of the New Jerusalem, which includes those of us who gather in the name of Christ, banks eternity on the thought. And chapters 13 through 27 tell us that God can do what he promises, for he is the God of the world and history. That's a lot of jurisdiction. Where is security found? There are different sources of security for your money, the piggy bank, the pillow, the bank, stocks. There's different kinds of security for your home, a dog, a video system, a light sleeper, a gate, a gun. And there are different kinds of security for your soul. Let's make four stops along the path of these chapters to ponder four sources of security, the first three species of one kind, human security, and the last, the only kind of security that can actually keep the soul. So where is your security found? How about first in Babylon, the self-exalted? Well, how about in Babylon, the self-exalted? This is the focus of chapter 13. We've already begun a little bit through the woods of this, of this chapter. This is security in who you are compared to others. It's your security found in who you are compared to others. Let's look at Babylon and then look at our, ourselves. What do we know about Babylon? Well, she's famous for her high culture. One commentator puts it this way Babylon was the center of culture and civilization in the Mesopotamian Valley and the entire ancient. Near East, and yes, she was. She was not at the time of Isaiah's writing and speaking the world's superpower, but Isaiah is writing for more than one audience, as we'll see in the weeks unfold. He's writing for those immediately in front of him and speaking for the generation immediately in front of him, but then he's also writing for a future generation that would be exiled to Babylon, captured by her when she is a superpower. She would capture Israel, but God would be over the entire affair. Her high culture is no surprise considering her origins. She was also famous for her high aspirations that marked her beginning, you'll remember. The Tower of Babel. After the flood, humanity thought, let's go ahead and build a tower into the sky to make a great name for ourselves. And so we see that when God cuts down the whole world to the most righteous man, all it needs is a little time, and this is what you get. God defying human pride. So God confused their languages, and that's why it's called Babel. She's so deluded in her view of herself as compared to others that when she imagines God, he is cute to her. The people that are in that place who have made now that that land are a proud people, but that's a miscalculation. God's math is always right. My proudly exalting ones, he says in verse 3, he calls them. He says in verse 11, I will put an end to the pomp, to the arrogance, and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. If you keep reading, it's pride, pompous, arrogant people. Not pride as in human ambition that leads to hard work and a job well done. Let's be all about that. We're talking about pride as in human exaltation that leads one to say, God, whoever you are, would you please move over so I can have a seat? How will it go for them? Well, verse 19, if you'll look down. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the strongest power in her day. The splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherds will make their flocks lie down there. But wild animals will lie down there. And their houses will be full of howling creatures. Their ostriches will dwell. And their wild goats will dance. Hyenas will cry in its towers and jackals in the pleasant places. Its time is close at hand and its days will not be prolonged. And if you will, keep your Bibles open throughout the rest of the sermon. We'll, we'll dip down and then skip up and then dip down a bit. How will it go for Babylon? Well, it'll go like this. She'll be, she'll be desolate, a good place for the animals to hang out. Well, how will it go for her leaders? Because we all know that some of the world's greatest superpowers have been led by very horrifying tyrants, and that would be the case at Babylon. Look at chapter 14 with me, verse 12. Speaking of Babylon's leaders, How are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn? How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Oh, it sounds like humanity in Eden, desiring to make one wise, make us like God, and so we ate. It sounds like humanity at Babel, making a tower. She's got the same proud human DNA. How did trying to take over for God go for Babylon? Verse 15. But you are brought down to Sheol. Sorry, for the leader of Babylon. To the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you. It gets personal now. And ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble? Who shook kingdoms? Who made the world like a desert? And overthrew its cities? Who did not let his prisoners go home? The higher one's self-exaltation and pride. Look out, friend. The farther the fall. Some have seen in this description a description of Satan. But there's no need to distinguish between the leader of Babylon, a tyrant of a world superpower in this case, and and Satan. Babylon's pride is Satan's pride. Both are out for the place of the God of the universe. Babylon's end is Satan's end, which is the end of every tyrant who claims the place of God over their people and slaughters them. The last century has seen its fair share. The judgment of history is nothing like the judgment of God on the likes of Hitler and Stalin and the rest. Well, here's how it ends for Babylon. Verse 22 of chapter 14. I will rise up against them, and I will make it a possession of the hedgehog and pools of water, and I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, declares the Lord of hosts. Owned by hedgehogs, swept like a broom. God's judgment of self-exalting pride from every nation down to every man. So we've looked at Babylon. Now let's, now let's take a look at ourselves. First of all, let's not draw a straight line from passages like this to the present geopolitical situation in a straight-lined kind of way. By that I mean some read this and see Babylon as equal to America, I like this slip America into the story here, Some will read this and see Israel as America. Some will read the Old Testament prophets and try to assign particular nations and countries to particular episodes and and judgment. There's much to be thankful for in the nation we find ourselves in as Christians, a nation founded on great ideas by many great leaders with a great story, but is it not marked by the pride of men in ways that are to be expected, given our human problem? I don't need to enumerate. Is it not marked now by such human pride? Christians do not go wrong by being good citizens, engaged politicians, active soldiers, and patriots. Christians go very wrong When we find our ultimate security in our nation so that if our nation goes wrong, all comes undone and she must be defended at every point. What does it mean for us to say God bless America? God blesses. This is the way I think we should apply this kind of paradigm we get. He blesses creaturely humility and he will bless a nation in so far as it expresses creaturely humility. This is not a Christian nation of which we are a part as though God has some that are his and some that are not his. America is not Israel. It is not a Christian nation. Of course, it depends on what we mean by that. That it was founded by those who saw in the Bible the revelation of God is true to an extent. That it was founded by many who were Christians is true to an extent That it is made up of many who claim the name of Christ is true to an extent. It certainly depends on what we mean by Christian nation. But America is a nation among nations. In every nation, you could plot on a spectrum between humility and pride. Thankfully, and it's one explanation for the flourishing that we've known in our own day, America was built on particular ideas that were creaturely humble that acknowledged at least the existence and the sovereignty of an ultimate sovereign that is over the state. And inasmuch as the United States recognizes the place of an ultimate sovereign and her creaturely position, we have reason to expect that God may bless through that humility a nation. And yet God brings low the proud and those original ideas, and what's on paper is no guarantee We have no promises in the Bible that we belong to God in any particular special way. She is not on the pages of Scripture. Her name is not. Humble nations are, proud nations are, God's judgment is, he brings low, he exalts. America is not the center of God's plans, but America is indeed a tool in God's hand as he works out his plans. And as soon as our hope and our security is found singularly in a nation or in parallel with the God of Scripture himself, let us watch him bring her low. I'm a proud American, but America is a nation, a good and flawed, and largely in its beginnings, a humble human experiment in statecraft. But let's keep it there. But here you and I meet on Sunday mornings. The church gathered as an entirely different kind of people. We aren't a subset of a nation. We're an outpost of an eternal kingdom by a king who is on his eternal throne and we meet under his rule, under his word. When we meet on Sunday, we remember that we are not high and the Lord is, that we are not boss of our lives and that he is, that our highest buildings are but a speck from heaven. We remember the God who brings low the proud and exalts the humble. We remember the one who was at the right hand of the Father, but who humbled himself and became a man. And even further, when he was lifted up on a cross and that he is exalted right now at the Father's right hand, and he will be there long after this great nation is forgotten. We meet to entrust ourselves to the one who did not look safe and secure, but is our only eternal safety And security. This nation may get, and we may amazingly get uh, robots to Mars. It's a grasping for eternity. It's a grasping for hope beyond even our very our very lives. But there is one who can keep us safe in death. Will we trust him? Christmas, my friends, is about lowly people finding a lowly savior and waiting for the exaltation that he brings to the highest heavens. This is the point of chapter 13. Don't worry about Babylon. Do not put your trust in her and do not fear her. She will be the haunt for jackals. You need a super and a different source, a more sure source of security. Well, where is security to be found? In Babylon, the self-exalted one? No. How about in Egypt, the self-made? In Egypt, the self-made. Turn with me to chapter 19. Turn with me to chapter 19. This is security in what you can achieve for yourself. So some find security. We all do. It's a form of human pride, a species of it. And who we are compared to others, as, as Babylon did, as any nation can, any people, person can. Well, here's, here's Egypt, the self-made. Security in what we can achieve for ourselves, a second source of security, a species of the first. Let's look at Egypt and then, and then ourselves. When we look at Egypt, she's got three things going for her. She's got her gods, she's got her river, and she's got her wisdom. Look at her gods. Egypt was polytheistic with a gazillion gods, as many as the Hindu religion. How strong are they? Look at verse 1. An oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt, and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence. And the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. You can tell a lot about a God by what the God can do for its people. Can these idols provide for the public order? Can these idols ensure an equitable rule and ruler? None of the above. Verse 2. I, says the Lord, will stir up Egyptians against Egyptians. Oh, how safe they were and secure they were in their self-made greatness. And I'll stir them up against each other, and they'll fight against each other, each against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. And the spirit of the Egyptians within them will be emptied out. They'll be brought low. I'll confound their counsel, and they will inquire of the idols. They'll go to their idols and their sorcerers and the mediums and the necromancers. And I will give over the Egyptians into the hand of a hard master. And a fierce king will rule over them. All these things that God will do. The Lord of history. The idols of Egypt stand idle. And they do nothing. Although they were trusted to do everything. They do nothing because they are nothing. And God shows it so. So much for man-made gods. Second, Egypt's self-made success depended upon her her river. The Nile was a big deal. The Nile was everything. It brought irrigation to the desert. It brought fertility to the land. It brought crops. It led to commerce, military might, and culture. Egypt was the Nile. But who has their hand on the spigot? Who controls the water supply? Verse 5, and the waters of the sea will be dried up. And the river will be dry and parched. What happens when the water is gone? Verse 8. The fishermen will mourn and lament all who cast a hook in the Nile, and they will all languish. Who spreads nets on the water? The workers in com- combed flax will be in despair, and the-, the weavers in white cotton of white cotton. Those who are the pillars of the land will be crushed, and all who work for pay will be grieved. And so as the Nile goes, so Egypt goes. Humans can do all kinds of things, can we not, with water. And we can do, for all we can do, we can do nothing without water. We are not as self-made as we think, for God has his hand on the spigot. Third, look at Egypt's greatness. Found in her wisdom. How about her wisdom? Her doctor fills, her Oprah's, her experts, her published academics, her self-help authors. Eh. Verse 11. The princes of Zoan, they're utterly foolish. The wisest counselors of Pharaoh, they give stupid counsel. <laughs> Verse 12. Where then are your wise men? Let them tell you that they might know that what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt the princes of Zoan have become fools and the, the princes of Memphis are deluded those who are the cornerstones of her tribes have made Egypt stagger the Lord has mingled within her a spirit of confusion and they will make Egypt stagger in all its deeds as a drunken man staggers in its vomit And there will be nothing for Egypt that head or tail, palm branch or reed may do. Her wisdom will prove empty. The Lord will confuse Egypt. Egypt's God, her river, her wisdom, nothing. And God will show show it so because she has put all of her trust in those things. We've looked a bit at Egypt. Now let's look at ourselves, friends. If you have a skill, You worked for that skill. If you have a degree, you worked hard for that degree. If you have a job, you worked hard for the job. But you contributed nothing to the rising of the sun, to the beating of your own heart as you slept, or to your oxygen supply. Nothing to it. You contributed nothing to your own birth. You are created. You're not self-made. You're maker-made. You're not self-made. You and I are made. And a proper posture toward God begins with the recognition that the very first line of the Bible is true, that in the beginning God created, not you or I, and he matters most. The greatest danger that comes from working hard and working the ground and leveraging a river and investing in learning and wisdom is that we can think that we are invisible, Invincible, excuse me. But you can't make yourself. And neither you or I can make ourselves acceptable to God. Dare I say, it's even harder to make yourself acceptable to God as a sinner than it is to make yourself from nothing. And God may pull the rug out from under you. And God may dry up the river that gave you life. He may take your job. If you're in a place today where the bottom is falling out and you did everything right, it may be that you did everything right, but the bottom falling out may also be a gracious gift from him so that you would know where true security is found. Where is security found? In Babylon, the self exultant, in comparison with with others. No, Babylon belongs to the hedgehog. It's not so good for Babylon in the end. In Egypt, the self-made, and what we can achieve by our own work? Nope. God owns the water source. How about another source of security? In Jerusalem the self-reliant. Turn to chapter twenty two with me. Here's the religious source. This is security and what you can security and what you can do. So much human religion is little more than some pretty decorations on another human answer to the problem of ultimate security before God. Let's look at Jerusalem and then ourselves. Who's Jerusalem? Well, in the story of the Bible, Jerusalem is, we could call it, it's a portal to heaven, as it were. We were with God in Eden, but we sinned and were sent away. Then God came to Abraham and promised a people, and he promised a land. And as God led his people through mighty wonders into the land in such a way that they would know it was him doing it as they trusted him, so Jerusalem was established as the city of God's great king who would provide God's rule over the people. And in that city... There was also a temple for the mediation of the very presence of God. Jerusalem, the center of God's saving work in the world. This is where all the action, all the action was at. But chapter 22 gives Jerusalem a cryptic name. It calls Jerusalem the valley of vision. You got to stare long and hard and put some things together to recognize he's speaking to Jerusalem. But he is here. A strange expression. How good is your, val- your vision in a valley? Well, not so good. So he calls Jerusalem a valley of vision. Chapter 22 opens with Jerusalem on a a rooftop, raving in exaltation over her military victory. And God is crying, verse 4, Look away from me and let me weep bitter tears. Let me weep bitter tears. They find greater security in the weapons in their own hand than in the God of heaven who can part the sea and smash Pharaoh's army. And he weeps about it. Verse eight, and that day you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest. Don't worry about what that is, I don't know. And you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool and you counted the houses of Jerusalem and you broke down the houses to fortify the wall and you made a reservoir between you and the two walls for the water of the old pool. But you did not look to him who did it. You see him who planted long ago. Jericho, David, and Goliath. That's how it's done. Trusting the Lord and trusting yourself to the Lord who is your Lord. In like fashion, look what her leader is doing. Verse 15. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Come, go to this steward, to Shebna, who's over the household, and say to him, What have you to do here? And whom have you here that you have cut out here a tomb for yourself? You who cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in a rock. (laughs) Shebna is a steward over God's house, a man of strength and influence, and he knows it. He gives great care to how he will be buried to protect the memory of himself and the minds of the people long after he's dead. The self-reliant stake their place in the memory of those who live because this life is still all they had because their answer is still only human. If you rely on yourself in life, you are all you will have in death. That's it. And so you'll carve out a tomb for yourself and make sure all the preparations are made. And you'll get that achievement done so that you are left. How does it go for this guy? Verse 17, behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently. Well, that wasn't what was planned. Hurl you away violently. Oh, you strong man. He will seize a firm hold on you and whirl you around and round and round, and throw you like a ball into a wide land. <laughs> this, is, this is rough. There you'll die, and there shall be your glorious chariots. you shame of your master's house. But were we to keep reading? There's another one, Eliakim, of the opposite sort, a foretaste of a future faithful king, a king opposite Ahaz from last week, a king who will bank all his trust on the Lord From within Israel, Israel has a future, a Messiah will come. But Jerusalem in Isaiah's day, they trusted in what everyone else trusted, apparently, in humanity. We've looked at Jerusalem, now we look at ourselves. What can we say? Friends, I pray the only thing you're saying is salvation is of the Lord. I hope you're not saying it's in a and the great church you go to, and as much as the church has a nice building and some programs and such, I hope that you say it's in in the Lord of the church, in the Christ of the church, who is better than any of your Christian friends and better than any fellowship, no matter how good the barbecue is after the service, who's better than any mere Christian leader. The kingdom is not achieved by personal goodness or personal human greatness. It is so much better than our best. It is as good as its king, the Lord Christ. A baby in a manger makes a nice scene for the lawn, but it is not an obvious answer to death. And a first century carpenter may have made some wonderful tables, but he is himself not the obvious answer to the problem of sin. And a Roman cross might have made a great deterrent for bad behavior in the Roman world, but it is not an obvious answer to the question of Security for our souls for eternity. But it is our source of true security, and it's an entirely different kind of technology. How about we put our trust in the one who can give the world superpower to a hedgehog? That's our Lord on the cross. How about we entrust ourselves to the one who can dry up the world's water supplies? That's the one on the cross. How about we entrust ourselves to the one who can whirl and fling about into the middle of a field the world's strongest leaders? That's the one up on a cross. How about finding our security in the sovereign Lord of space and time, the God of the world and history? Chapters 24 through 27. Turn to chapter 24 with me. Chapter 24, verse 1. Who is the Lord? Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. He's the Lord of the world. Now flip over to chapter 25. Chapter 25, verse 1. Oh, Lord, you have done wonderful things. Plans formed from old, faithful and sure. He's the God of history. He plans it all. He gets done what he says he'll do. He's the God of the world and history. A total coverage security plan. Back to chapter 24 now. Remember, Isaiah's vision has a vision of two cities. There are five major sections in the book that contribute to this building contrast between these two cities. The one city finds its answers, its security ultimately in humanity, whether self-exaltation, self-made strength, or self-reliance. And the other city finds its answer to the question of The soul and death and a right standing before God in the Lord himself. Here's a look into the future for the first city, the city of man. Look at verse 10 with me. A kind of a summary of what we've read. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none can enter. There's an outcry in the streets for a lack of wine. All joy has grown dark and the gladness of the earth banished. Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins for thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations. And when an olive tree is beaten as the gleaning when the grape harvest is done. And who does this? Chapter 26, verse five, don't move there. We'll stay in chapter 24. The lofty city, he, the Lord lays it low, he says, casts it all the way into the dust. This world with its trolling about Pompous nations, murderous tyrants will be laid low and put down. And so will every single human person tucked into every nation who sees themselves as a God unto themselves. You and I apart from grace. He takes the song out of their mouth. Chapter 24, verse eight. The tambourines are stilled. No more tambourines. The noise of the jubilant has ceased. But thankfully, if you don't like that city, there is a new city to come of which you can be a part. If you're willing to believe God's word against what appears to be strength in this age, the new Jerusalem is open to you and it has a very different future. Now turn to me with to chapter 26. Listen to the song of this city and look at the walls of this city. Verse 1. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city and he sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. The walls are made of salvation. That's a beautiful picture. The gates aren't battered ruins. They're built for righteousness. And who's going in? Verse 2, open the gates, open them up. That the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. And here we have a little flicker of the doctrine of justification by faith. Who goes in to this city, who belongs in God's eternal kingdom and will sing these glorious songs and shake the tambourine? It's the righteous. Who are the righteous? Those who entrust themselves fully to God because God is the one who provides ultimate security. Those who say I have no security in myself will find total security in the God who does. He's not just a rock, but an everlasting rock. And he is not just strong, but he's strong forever. If you feel unsafe and insecure this holiday season because it marks the passing of a loved one, there is one who holds eternity in his hands and out to you. And as you pass through death, you can be sure that you have life on the other side. If by faith you come to him and say, there's no security found in myself or anything in man. The people that go into these gates will sing crazy things. Verse 19, your dead shall live and their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy for your due is the due of light and the earth will give birth to the dead. Basically what we sing about every Sunday morning Resurrection from the dead, an empty tomb, the answer to death and sin. Ever been to a Christmas party where there's food and lots of food and laughing and fun? Chapter 25 now, turn back a page. Verse 6, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. This is the new Jerusalem on this mountain. It's no valley of vision now. It's a mountain of a vision of God. Rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. Wine isn't dried up. Of rich food full of marrow and well-aged wine. It's well-refined. How emphatic is that? And he'll swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples and the veil that is spread over all nations. And he'll swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all their faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken." And that's where you get lines we read on the very end of the Bible, the very last page. The reproach is taken away and there are no more tears. And so we must say that perception is not always reality. The first city may be large and wealthy and powerful and resourceful, but not forever. And where our trust is in ourselves, our singing will be stopped. But the second city may be small, threatened, scorned, and looked down upon in this age Don't be afraid of a church that feels small and weak. Dare I say, in the coming years and ages, our church may feel less attractive and less cool and less of a magnet, but for those who are willing to come low and associate with those who tie themselves to a man on a cross. The second city may look small and threatened and scorned and down upon, but not forever, for where our trust is in God, our singing will burst forth forever. Some feel they'll be accepted before God because of something in themselves. And we've seen that in these nations and peoples that we've examined. But I know that there are some here who feel they won't be accepted precisely because they have nothing in themselves. And it's really the same source of trust. One says, God will take me because of who I've made myself to be or because of who I am in comparison to others or because of my great religious participation, but otherwise I'm relying on myself. And maybe you already feel like a haunt for jackals. Remember how the prophets hold out judgment, but also hope? Listen to me, listen, listen to these words from Isaiah chapter 19. A surprising flicker of hope in the space of a paragraph, remember all of God's judgment on these proud nations, which include Egypt and Syria. In that day, we read, there will be an altar to the Lord. This is in that day of salvation. An altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt when they cry to the Lord because of their oppressors. He will send them a savior and defender and will deliver them. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians and the Egyptians will know the Lord in the day and worship with sacrifice and offerings and they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, striking and healing and they will return to the Lord and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria Oh, well, there's another proud nation. And Assyria will come into Egypt. And Egypt will come into Assyria. What's going on here? And the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. Wait, what? In that day, Israel will be a third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts is blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my, my inheritance. The Lord will make himself known among the depraved and proud and self-exaltant and self-made and self-reliant nations of the earth and among the self-reliant people that fill it, which includes you. So if you feel a haunt for jackals today, God will make himself known to the Egyptians and God through his word has made himself known to you. So entrust yourself to him. Let's pray. Father, we've heard on the pages of scripture the sound of judgment and we have heard the sound of singing because you come to make a people to sing to yourself. And so now as we come to sing to you and as we leave these doors to to be workers and husbands and wives and sons and daughters and neighbors and whatever roles we fill, We pray that we would be kept in our place, that we would remember that we are dust, and that what we have in Christ and the hope that is ours, we have wholly because you have made it possible. Through the sending of your son as a babe, and then to live and to die and to be raised, salvation can come so that you put a song in the mouth of those who did not know you and did not love you and thought themselves gods unto themselves, which was us. We thank you for Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.